Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we discuss the incredibly hot topic of brain inflammation. We start with a case presentation, discuss the different types of cells and chemicals that are involved in the process, different neurological conditions that demonstrate a neuroinflammatory response, such as traumatic brain injury, encephalopathies, multiple sclerosis, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and others, some myths and misunderstandings, potential treatments on the horizon, and what we can do to prevent it. This episode was broadcasted live to our Neuro Academy audience, and we had a live Q&A session at the end. Neuro Academy is a membership-based online environment where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal brain health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline. You will have access to monthly live Q&As such as this one, live cooking sessions with me, live podcasts such as this one with a Q&A with remarkable health leaders, ongoing on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases, and we're expanding the courses to evidence-based nutrition and cooking very soon, neurocoaching, anxiety, and many other courses on various topics related to brain health. You will also be able to get CE or CME credits if you're interested, and also receive certification after taking the course. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. And now let's listen to this amazing episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sophia was a 28-year-old female without any significant past medical history who presented to the emergency department one day complaining of persistent nausea and vomiting as well as multiple episodes of dizziness. According to her mother, she had also been experiencing some memory loss, which kind of got worse uh, day after day uh, in the past few weeks to the extent that she couldn't recognize her siblings and her cousins. There was no history of any alcohol or drug abuse. So after a couple of episodes where she couldn't recognize close family members and she was brought into the emergency room, her mental status got worse. Mm -hmm. She quickly developed expressive aphasia, which basically means that she couldn't produce any words. And over time, over the next few hours, she became more and more unresponsive and lethargic. The emergency room doctors recognized that she needed to be taken to the ICU unit as soon as possible. Given the history, one of the first things people think about is herpes encephalitis, for which she was treated quickly. She was admitted to the ICU for closed neurological monitoring and further workup. Given the concern for virus, viral encephalitis, a cyclovir was started. A cyclovir is an antiviral medication, and it was started empirically. Her neurological condition was now getting worse, and she only responded to her name, and there was neurologic signs of brain involvement, such as Babinski or exaggerated reflexes. Laboratory studies in urine toxicology were fairly normal and not reflective of any profound metabolic or toxic disturbance. Imaging studies were done, uh, which included a CT and an MRI, an MRA. MRA stands for MR and geography of the brain. And it did not reveal any intracranial or neurovascular lesions, ruling out vascular or mass lesions as the cause of her encephalopathy. So, so let me just explain some of this stuff because there's a lot of medical jargon, jargon and, but it's such a fascinating case that the two of us have seen multiple times. Yes. Uh, a, a young person that over a period of a few hours to a few days rapidly regresses and, and has these neuropsychological symptoms. And initially they think it's psychological, so the family actually delays it a bit, but it's so rapid and out of character that usually they uh, they quickly recognize that there's something wrong. And the neurological things that you were talking about, Babinski's, these are some really interesting things. These are the primordial reflexes, like when you cross the, uh, touch the bottom of the feet, and the instead of actually trying to get away from the scratch, they actually flare away, flare towards it. And the uh, toes flare. That's actually a very consistent and very, um, um, a reliable sign of something is going on in the central nervous system. Yeah. And there are many others like that. 
Um, so this was quickly recognized as something going on in the central nervous system, and we see this often. Absolutely. <clears throat> so um, again, you know, after studies of imaging studies of the brain, they didn't see any stroke, they didn't see any uh, lesions that could be causing this. They also did lumbar puncture, which is when they go into the spine, you know, they draw out fluid, the cerebrospinal uh, fluid with uh, a needle. And the analysis in this particular study revealed a particular lymphocytic uh, reaction or lymphocytic predominance. Yeah, one of the best signs uh, ways of determining brain uh, pathology, acute brain pathology, or, or something that's new, is looking at the cerebral spinal fluid. This is the fluid that bathes your brain. So if there's inflammation, if there's infection, if there's any kind of tumor or any kind of can cancer, anything in the, in the brain, you should see some signs of it in the, in the uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And even the cellular response, the type of cellular response, whether it's neutrophilic or lymphocytic, or tells you what kind of reaction could be happening in the brain. Exactly. So yeah. we fairly quickly, we can tell, oh, this looks like a bacterial infection, like meningitis, or it looks like a viral infection, like a lymphocytosis, or just inflammatory. So this was leaning more towards inflammatory or viral kind of a picture. Exactly. And they did actually do some viral studies and bacterial studies, and there were none. There was no fungus either. Right. Um, they did an EEG, which is a test of brain waves. And it was significant for some mild encephalopathy, which means that it was just a vague disorder, but there were no seizures. There were no localized seizures coming from part of the brain, which right. could contribute to loss of consciousness consciousness or loss of awareness. And this is very interesting because anytime you, there's a, a acute, a, the word acute means sudden or, or a short period of time, altered mental status, we think of chemical, electrical, or structural. Either there's a chemical imbalance, be it an infection or drug or electrolytes, like sodium is very high or calcium is out of whack or something of that nature or it's um, a, a electrical, which means seizures. Some, all seizures are not what they call tonic-clonic, where the person is just shaking all over the body and, and, and they're writing. And sometimes it's, it's actually quiet. You don't see them making any movements. In fact, there's a thing in children called absence seizures, where they actually all of a sudden stare into space. This is very common in schools. That's, in the past, they didn't know this. They thought that the child was, um, had attention problems. But when they did EEGs, they found that they had a particular type of seizures, which is called absence seizures. And you can tell from the EEG. So seizures can cause this, and then structural, meaning a tumor or something of that nature, which pushes the brain. So fairly quickly, you can tell what altered the mental status. And in this person, their mental status is being altered. So electrical was out. Mm -hmm. Chemical, for the most part, infection was kind of out, and, and uh, metabolic was out. So now, is, and, and imaging didn't show any tumor or anything like that. So where your differentials or the things that could be causing this was quite limited. It's beautiful how you can kind of quickly, within minutes to uh, half an hour, narrow down your diagnosis to this is what these group of things that could be uh, the cause. Absolutely. So they also checked for HIV, herpes, syphilis, all the screening were <clears throat> negative. Um, and then acyclovir was discontinued at that point. Sometimes they just start a medication to make sure they cover their bases, but then after the test came back negative, they stopped it. And at this juncture, the possibility was that of an autoimmune phenomenon uh, as all of the objective data was unrevealing. Yeah, autoimmune means that when the body actually makes antibodies against itself. And some of you might know this, there are many diseases like that. Uh, MS is one of those, multiple sclerosis, but there are many, many others, lupus and, and many others as well. And there are acute or, or sudden autoimmune processes. Um, and what happens is the body makes a mistake. So everything, uh, every living thing, uh, bacterial or otherwise, or sometimes even drugs, have these markers on them that the body looks at the marker, makes antibodies specifically for that marker, but as it, but as it happens, that marker is also found in a, on, on the body, on a part of the body, or in this case, part of the brain. And so you look for autoantibodies um, um, uh, for this kind of condition. And there are several autoantibody diseases 
that can manifest with neurological symptoms. Absolutely. And that's exactly what they did. Um, this is, uh, you know, they tested for conditions or a spectrum of conditions called paraneoplastic syndrome, which are tumor markers. So say, for example, if somebody has um, a tumor somewhere in the body and that tumor hasn't been discovered as of yet, it actually causes a reaction in the body and antibodies are created that start damaging either the brain or the skin or the musculoskeletal structure. Mm -hmm. And through those manifestations, one can actually start looking for tumors. So they, they went ahead and they looked for perineoplastic syndromes and sent the panels. And one of the tests that they do for that is to get CT scans of the um, chest of the abdomen and the pelvis to find if there's a tumor hiding somewhere. It's so interesting that when you suspect perineoplastic, although you look for tumors, but there are a lot of times that the tumor actually is two years away. Let me. T so that means that it, the marker actually appears a year to two years or even maybe longer before the tumor appears. Right. Obviously the tumor has started at microscopic levels and the body is starting to make antibodies against it. So in a way, if you, uh, if you detect it early enough, you can also treat the tumor early enough. Mm -hmm. There are many tumors that have a very high relationship with, with perineoplastic, such as um, lung cancers. Exactly. Uh, uh, and even before the lung cancer manifests, sometimes the autoantibodies appear. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you're kind of fortunate uh, a lot of times. Or, or, at, or at least we don't have the uh, <clears throat> tests or the objective markers to detect the beginnings of a tumor exactly, in the body. Exactly, exactly. And then there are things like dermatomyositis, which are these skin findings that appear. And, and with those- Proximal muscle weakness. Pros muscle weakness. And with those, you, about 75% of the time, there are perineoplastic phenomena. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, that these are markers of tumor, sometimes during the occurrence of the tumor, where you can see it in the body. That's why you do the scans. or uh, way before. In those cases, you actually follow for a year or two or longer to make sure that tumor does not appear even after you've treated it. Absolutely. So Sophia went through a lot of testing and these kind of conditions are very vague and difficult to um, to detect. So she was started on uh, a treatment plan for presumed anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. She was given IVIG, which stands for intravenous immunoglobulins. And she had a little bit of improvement over the next two days of therapy. She then underwent successful laparoscopic resection of an ovarian mass. They actually found a small mm -hmm. tumor in her left ovary after doing the CT scan of her pelvis. Um, and after they removed it, they did pathology on it, and they confirmed a type of a teratoma. It's, it's a pathological variation of a tumor. And she drastically started improving after the tumor was resected and after she got two or three days of IVIG. She did not get back to normal. Obviously, it took her a very long time for her memory to get better, but there was significant improvement within the first few days. Although the CSF and the serum assays or the blood tests for all kinds of autoimmune antibodies that you can think of, including NMDAR, anti-amphiphysin. I don't want to actually just throw these, you know, strange names, but there are many of them that were tested. Um, the fact that there was a rapid resolution in her symptoms right away, and the fact that she actually improved, um, showed the fact that this was an anti, it was an anti-NMDAR encephalitis. So that was the final diagnosis. Now, NMDA, or, uh, NMDA receptor is a major part of the central nervous system, especially in places for memory and emotion. I'm being too general. That's much more specific than that. NMDAs are incredibly important um, uh, part of the central nervous system. At some other point, we can take a little time to talk about this because there's a lot of drugs that are specifically created for the NMDA system. But in this case, the antibody actually affects it, so therefore it affects you psychologically in, all, in, 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 in so many ways. And, um, and the neuropsychological signs include memory loss, hallucinations, um, decreased level of consciousness, behavioral disorders. Um, and if not treated, it's often lethal. But if treated, it can be um, curtailed and pushed back and, and sometimes uh, relieved completely. So um, this is a very unusual case, um, NMDA receptor and, um, uh, antibodies. It's, it's a few cases per 100,000, 
but it gives you an idea that how an a inflammatory process, although this is an antibody process, mm -hmm. but the inflammatory process is a major component of it. And, and how something like this can actually lead to an acute process that then just propagates if you don't treat it. And we'll get to that in a bit where we tell you all these traumas, both acute or chronic, how the short term can be in one manifestation, but long term, it can have a very different presentation. Um, uh, so with that said, um, I want to kind of uh, expand on this um, common language that we bring up to inflammation, mm -hmm. almost like pulling us back a little bit, even though in our book we've talked about inflammation, um, uh, uh, anti-inflammatory uh, foods and uh, inflammatory um, scale and all of that stuff. I feel that it's a word that <clears throat> is incredibly important, but it's also quite abused. Abused because people say things like, oh, this vitamin concoction can lower your inflammation. Or if you change your acid-base mechanism in your body, you can lower your inflammation. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's a little more complicated and it's important for people to know this because once you know it, then you get a better picture of how long-term you can affect it for the majority and how short-term, if there is such a phenomenon, you have to address it pretty acutely and urgently. I also think that there might be a problem with semantics. You know, I think inflammation in our day-to-day -day, uh, usage yeah. or inflammation as we know of it, you know, visible inflammation, like when your hands start swelling, if you hit it against, you know, an object, or for example, if you have a bee sting, you kind of get an inflammatory reaction on your skin. Um, I think all of this has been kind of put under the same umbrella. Yeah. But when it comes to neurological conditions and neuroscience, inflammation is quite different. And dare I say it's different even in, in other systems as well, because I think inflammation is, inflammation is one of the reasons why we are alive. It's a very important mechanism of fighting off invading um, organisms in our body, um, in you know, minimizing the damage of environmental factors, and also helping us heal. Yeah. Um, so there's a very there's a it, so so there's a problem of just the definition and semantics, and then there's another problem of completely vilifying it and throwing everything at it. And the reason is because we live in the balance. Now, uh, I always, uh, you and I have talked that's, about that this. That sounded very poetic and I know, soft. I know, but, but I'm, I'm going to get to But I know it. that it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, there's I'm, a lot of hard science behind that too. Exactly. So uh, I say the battle of humanity is basically uh, two inches apart between the limbic system and the frontal lobe whether it's political, whether it's scientific, whether it's um, at, at, at every level you can think of, it's the limbic battle between, uh, b the battle of the limbic system and the frontal lobe. It's the, the emotional brain and the thinking brain. And it's not one or the other, it's just the in the balance or the imbalance of that that the humanity is right now facing what it's facing in whatever realm you're seeing. And, and when it comes to a body, there are many battles like that, but the biggest one is inflammation. You need inflammation. In fact, you have a pro-inflammatory system that you need to survive. In fact, without the inflammatory system, you would not survive a minute. I agree. You wouldn't even survive in utero. Your body needs to be able to fight uh, micro uh, inflammations, micro traumas, um, in order to um, infections, in order to survive. Yeah. That system is powerful. You have the humoral, and then you have the uh, the, uh, the long-term system that actually uh, uh, the multiple mechanisms and chains of inflammatory pathway that's been built over millions of years for us to, to survive. But then you have said this beautifully, long-term and short-term survival are different, aren't they? Absolutely. So before we kind of engage in the pathways of brain inflammation and what really happens in our brain and what it is, uh, let's go ahead and talk about the myths. Because yes. it's always great to start a conversation by addressing the myths so that the, the, the conversation stays structured. So one of the biggest myths that we hear, Dean, and I want you to expand on this, is that all inflammation is bad. So we started speaking about that a little bit. Um, all inflammation is not bad. There are some, some inflammation that's good. In fact, inflammation is good. Inflammation is body's response acutely to trauma, to infection, to, to any kind of attack on the body. And it, it, it's a... A system that fights, a there are cells 
that fight uh, in, infections and infl inflammatory processes. Um, uh, and there are um, antibodies that also react. And we'll talk about the different cells in the brain that are responsible for inflammatory reaction uh, very soon. Exactly. The next one is, like you said earlier, by taking some pills or a particular supplement or nutrient, one can reverse inflammation. Uh, you you can affect it to a little to extent, but as much as it's been said in the media that this one food and this one pill or this one behavior is going to profoundly affect inflammation, not so. Yes, there are behaviors that you do over time might affect significantly, and these are bigger behaviors like exercise and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself and eating greens and you know things of that nature. But one thing on its own is 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 not going to be uh, that that uh, profoundly powerful, especially not pills. To the best of our knowledge today, will we have engineered, personalized uh, concoctions that will perfectly address our inflammation and bring balance? Yes, there will be a time like that if we at that point haven't uh, gotten rid of the body altogether. That's a different talk altogether. But if we maintain this body, yes, we will have those kind of uh, uh, concoctions that will be designed for us. We are not even close to that because we haven't even figured out the mechanism, the timing, their interactions with diseases, and we'll get there soon. So what about this one? Most diseases of the brain are caused by inflammation. Is that a myth? It sounds like a fact. Well, no. So cause is, is, is important to delineate cause. Is, is it a primary cause, meaning that it is the prime mover, or is it a secondary cause? There are prime mover situations, um, um, uh, but most of inflammatory processes are secondary, whether it's autoimmune, whether it's infection, um, vascular, vascular um, even uh, we, we saw tumors or anything, it's secondary. Um, be it short-term or long-term, even if it's bad foods or bad, you know, lack of movement, all, these are all secondary or tertiary responses that inflammation causes. So inflammation is not a prime mover. It's usually an adjunct. It's usually an add-on that causes further damage. Um, and, and, and if it's, if it has to do a lot of work, you'll, we'll get there in a second, the response will be exaggerated and that's where things can go wrong. Okay. Plot twist. <laughs> Plot twist. Yeah. Um, evolution has wisdom to protect us, thus inflammation. <laughs> um, evolution cared about you reproducing. That's it. Evolution, the rest we, we, we create as far as um, the processes going forward. Um, the evolution did not care at, at all about you living long term. If you reproduced and you lived past the age of reproduction, then the rest, in fact, there's almost like process of what's called apoptosis, programmed cell death. People would dispute this fact, but it doesn't care about you surviving long term. In fact, you're actually uh, taking space, you're taking uh, ecosystem, you're taking resources. But we're cheating that system, and I'm cheating the system, and, and we all are cheating, and we're fine with that. So evolution is not designed. So when people bring paleo and history and, and biology and evolution, it really doesn't make sense long-term. It's, it's a short-term phenomenon that we have to uh, acknowledge, but not long-term. Long-term, we have to go outside of evolution and say, what goes wrong? And a lot goes wrong after the age of 30s. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. All right, so as far as the pathways are concerned, inflammation in the brain can be initiated as a response to multiple causes, as you discussed. It could be infection, it could be traumatic brain injury, toxins, metabolic byproducts, metabolic diseases like diabetes and high cholesterol, um, autoimmune conditions, uh, which means you know the body starts reacting and fighting against our own cells, not recognizing them as self, but recognizing them as a foreign entity, and vascular diseases as well, like strokes. In fact, everything. Anything that throws the body out of whack, the body responds in inflammation in many ways, in some, one way or another, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, but inflammation is the body's response to correct. Um, and um, we have this, and, 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 you know, in medical school, you get kind of lazy. You, you, everything is an acronym. The, silly, the sillier, the better. Uh, this one is not that silly, but I've had some risky ones and silly ones as well, lots of them. Um, but Vendismal is one of them, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, which is uh, uh, anytime, um, you know, there's a rounds and during the rounds where the attending is trying to 
uh, ask you questions and puts you under pressure. If you have Van Dismal, you, you're pretty good, which is V stands for vascular, uh, um, autoimmune, um, and, and uh, neurot uh, uh, neuropathic, um, and, and, and the list goes on. Inflammatory, vascular, and on and on. And if you go through this, then it causes, it's, a, it's a cause. It's a differential. But basically, anything can cause inflammation, but the degree matters. And the body's response matters, and the body's overreaction matters. Two things, overreaction and chronicity. Remember those things. If the body's, there's a situation where there's significant trauma to the body, <clears throat> the body often has to over-respond. And that's going to have long-term consequences. And if the body has long-term inflammation, then that can cause long-term uh, damage. So those are the two phenomena that we have to be aware of. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about what happens in the brain when there is um, uh, inflammation or what actually starts or is the kindle to this fire? Yeah, yeah. So the, the peripheral inflammatory system is a little different than central nervous system. The central nervous system is, um, which is the spinal cord and the brain are, as you've heard many times, are completely hermetically sealed from the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and one of those cells that I'm gonna name here, astrocytes, are responsible, the others are endothelial cells that create these incredible wrappings around veins and arteries, arteries that doesn't allow anything to cross. I mean, you would be shocked that even glucose needs a transporter. Right, that's it has to how, be that small to that actually small. Yeah. pass through. It's, it's incredibly uh, resilient and it's incredibly resistant. And inside the central nervous system, we have a different kind of uh, um, uh, system. And that system is run by um, cells such as glial cells and cytokines. So glial cells outnumber neurons by an exponential number. There was a time that we used to say 10 times more, but that number is being challenged. It's a little less, but still significantly more neurons. Um, and these are support cells. Mm -hmm. And there are so many of them with so many different functions. You have astrocytes, you have oligodendrocytes, and then you have microglial cells. Each of them have different types of function. Um, so let's start with astrocytes. Astrocytes, as the name implies, are star-like. These are small star-like cells that are everywhere in the central nervous system. They move around. And their function is to send transporter information, the cytokines, these chemicals. And I'll get to the chemicals in a bit. And these chemical and, and these astrocytes actually get different functions at different times. They move throughout the, the brain. They even are involved in the blood-brain barrier. And they create these tight junctions so nothing can cross. They are multifaceted but incredibly powerful in protecting the brain. They wear a lot of hats. They wear a lot of hats. They actually, have a, a lot, lot of responsibilities. Yeah. Absolutely. The oligodendroglial cells, that's a mouthful, um, they lay down a laminated lipid layer, which is uh, their cells that have a lot of fat, and they wrap around axons. These are the connections between neurons. It's almost, you've seen the wires in your home. The wires in your home have a wrap, wrapping around it, right? Yes, like a, an insulation. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, in a way, it's an insulation, but in that case, in this case, the purpose of insulation is not so that electricity can go faster. In our case, the myelination is so that the charge, not so much electricity, but the charge can go faster. In fact, when there's demyelination, like in disease like multiple sclerosis and others, the charge moves slower. That's why a lot of the functions become slower. And these are powerful, important cells. They are ubiquitous throughout the brain, around the connections, and they happen during the teenage years, actually earlier, and then all the way to 20s and early 20s, and that wrapping matters because it, de it determines the speed of processing, the speed of movement between the areas of the brain and movements. And those have different kinds of effect. And they are also affected by inflammation, like as in MS. Although MS is a uh, multiple sclerosis, is an autoimmune disease, but it has a strong inflammatory component. Absolutely. So that's another one. And then uh, you have the microglia, as the name implies that they're small cells. Mm -hmm. Microglia are scavenger cells. They, they clean up, they eat up, they, they look for waste, they, uh, they get rid of things. And, and as we've said in many talks, uh, they can go awry and start damaging the brain. 
and microglia respond to inflammation by jumping in and saying, what can I get get out of here? Yeah. It's like those hyper uh, energized um, um, workers that want to get rid of everything. Well, if, if we could actually create a picture of how these microglia uh, work, you know, they're essentially the housekeepers of the brain. Yes. They're gentle, they're housekeepers, they clean up the brain. They're the ones that get activated when we go through the deeper stages of sleep and they get rid of, you know, byproducts and things of that nature. But there is a, um, there's almost a, um, you know, um, uh, a, a change in its characteristic where yes. they go from a housekeeping mode mode into a complete a you know, like a SWAT team, like a soldier yes. mode all of a sudden and they can cause so much destruction in the brain. Correct. And they have been implicated in a lot of the neuroinflammatory conditions. They have. And, 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 uh, and, and the problem is that there's a tipping point in these inflammatory processes. The tipping point. The tipping point, initially, they're all beneficial. They respond. If there's a stroke, there has to be an inflammatory response to control it, to make sure that they, 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 they maintain the process, they eat away the dead cells, they get rid of all these. But sometimes there's a tipping point where there's too much response, and then that can be um, cause damage. Or when there's chronic conditions, such as autoimmunity, you, you're producing autoimmunity constantly now. Now it's producing it against itself and you can't deprogram that. Then it's a constant inflammation, constant damage. That's, that can be incredibly destructive. And uh, so it's the tipping point effect that, 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 that we have to worry about. In some cases, they've mentioned the fact that uh, this change in character can be instigated by T cells. And these are, you know, white blood cells that are activated during an immune response, whether outside of the brain or sometimes inside of the brain, but mostly from the outside of the brain entering into the brain. So when T cells are available, microglia and astrocytes have this change in personalities right yeah. away. Yeah, it's beautifully said. I mean, because that set the up. So how did T cells, how did peripheral immune system get into the central nervous system. When the inflammation is great enough and we've hit the tipping point, now, of course, I'm using these, some of these terms loosely, but uh, something happens that the blood-brain barrier is compromised. And now you have peripheral immune system coming in. In fact, that's how we detect them in, in the central, in the CSF, in the cerebrospinal fluid. And they start coming in and they propagate this process. And then once that happens, it's almost like a cascade. Yeah, it the is. The cascade goes on. And sometimes there are certain chemicals that are secreted by the microglia and the astrocytes, and they communicate with each other, saying that there is a massive problem going on in the brain, and that's how the downward spiral or this massive cascade of inflammation gets out of hand. Remember that this comes to that evolution statement. If it was enough to over, to tip the, the scale... The, the, the cytokines are going out everywhere saying, I need to survive. I don't care about the damage I'm causing long-term. I just need to survive now so I can reproduce tomorrow. Well, it's a little more complicated than that, but, but I made it a, a little um, almost like a um, uh, story-like. But, but nonetheless, it's, it's that tipping point that tells them, I need to survive now. I don't care if I'm compromising the uh, blood-brain barrier. That's not gonna kill me today, tomorrow, or even in a, in a, in a month or two or maybe longer. Uh, I need to bring in so many of the uh, um, peripheral uh, immunity um, and, and initially it's gonna help me survive. Yeah, it might damage me in two years, three years, four years, but I don't care about that. I just need to survive now. In fact, the immediate survival mechanism, which also involves the autonomic system as, as, uh, as you know, also affects the vasculature, the va peripheral vasculature actually uh, is, is squeezed in Everything is centralized, goes to the brain. There's more blood flow to the brain. There's immune, immune response to the brain. And it's all men on deck, survival mode. That's yeah. what we're facing at this point. You mentioned cytokines earlier. So cytokines are proteins that mediate the body's immune reaction. And these are chemicals that are produced by T cells or other cells. And they essentially tell astrocytes and microglia to continue their fight against the cells in the brain. And so the hold, you know, the killing <laughs> sounds yes. aggressive, but the killing is propagated by the massive amount of cytokines that are introduced into the central nervous system. Yeah, and uh, some of the cytokines are IL-6, um, uh, interleukin-6, interleukin-1, uh, interleukin-1b, uh, TNF-alpha. Every day we're hearing a different cascade. Absolutely. When we were at Cedars, 
we're working with this uh, amazing neurosurgeon, um, Dr. Gonzalez, uh, and and uh, brilliant, Gonzalez. brilliant. And his he's a neurosurgeon, but his his area of interest is inflammation and inflammatory pathways response to stroke, and the cascades that are being elucidated. And the importance of that is that because as we elucidate, we start controlling them. Well, we might have actually pharmaceuticals or mechanisms for the acute situations. I know that we talk about prevention, that, and we'll get to that. For, but for the acute situations, we need immediate responses. We need immediate tools to temper them and control them and, and, and modulate them. And, and there's a lot going on there. Absolutely. So a very important question and a discussion that is usually brought about when you read these fabulous papers by scientists looking into neuroinflammation is, why would the brain's immune cells become so destructive in the first place? Why is it that they become Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde right away? Yeah. And the one of the explanations that you hear about often is that these cells haven't really adapted to the human lifespan. They were essentially cheating death. So to them, you know, they were programmed during evolution to eliminate infection. Anything that is introduced in, in the brain and the central nervous system that is not familiar is considered as a threat or an infection, and they just go haywire. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's that concept that uh, evolution does not care about your long-term survival. Yeah. So, so um, it's, um, uh, it's basically we have to fight evolution. So anything that causes the death of a neuron uh, is simply assumed as if it's an infection. And so these, cell sh these cells shift from being housekeepers into like a SWAT team. It, it's a SWAT team. It is. Absolutely. So what are the, uh, um, so we talked about some of the examples and we'll go over those. Uh, where traumatic brain injury is a common one for acute phases. So there's acute situations and there are chronic situations. Most of the things we're describing to you are acute, but we'll talk about the chronic ones as well. A stroke is a very common one. In fact, one of the first things we do is to lower inflammation, be it with uh, uh, lipid lowering drugs, which actually have an anti-inflammatory phenomenon and other drugs as well. In head trauma, there's an acute phase, which means like right after the head injury. And then there is a chronic phase, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. Correct. So we'll talk about that as well. Yeah. And then we talked about strokes, infections, and 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 then there are these what we one of them NMDA receptor was one of them but Ig IgG related diseases autoimmune encephalopathy neuromyelitis optica uh, spectrum disorders anti uh, GQ one B um, and so many and perineoplastics and then of course the infections mm -hmm. the infections are u ubiquitous uh, we talked about the ones that uh, alter the mind the herpes uh, uh, simplex um, and and others uh, but uh, to be honest. Now we think that there, is, there are many cases of chronic infection, indolent chronic infection, meaning low-grade infections that might be affecting people's brains, not so much bacterial, but viral, that we never detected, but they have consequences. So that's another thing to be aware of as well. That's important to um, elaborate on because I think a lot of that can be misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed too. I mean, you have different, you know, health outlets and people who claim to be healthcare providers uh, kind of hyping this concept of brain inflammation and having protocols and vitamin concoctions for it too. Um, you know, the, one of the things that we learn as, an, as neurologists is that if there is a central nervous system problem, it's almost impossible for people to be functional. Yeah. It usually manifests into a condition which needs uh, immediate, uh, immediate and urgent uh, care. Uh, whether it's in the urgent care or emergency room or hospital or doctor. Is it possible to have massive brain inflammation where people are functional and walking around? Massive brain inflammation? No. No. I mean, low-grade inflammation, there is some evidence that people can have low-grade, but I think we don't... That's why it's important to not extrapolate, and we don't have enough information on those. Exactly. We do say that you know things like bad food, things like um, you know um, not living healthy can cause a disproportion of the omega-3 versus omega-6 pathway and so on and so forth. But do we have direct evidence? No, but we have long-term evidence that we have to better elucidate. And we're going to act as though um, uh, we, we are influencing them 
because there is epidemiological data, there's, uh, uh, we, we don't, uh, and there's a lot of data that actually corroborates it, but it needs to be better elucidated. And, but it definitely is being overused by those who pull, uh, push pills and push vitamin concoctions and others. So we have to be careful about that. Absolutely, absolutely. So in each of these situations, let's take traumatic brain injury. There is a, um, a reparative and a degenerative phase. Or if, uh, what happens is initially there is a onslaught of cellular and uh, cytokine and even from periphery, other humoral responses that are there to help clear waste, clear damage, uh, um, uh, affect the vasculature that's been damaged, and, and it's a reparative process. But often there's an overreaction, and that's where the degenerative process happens. Even in strokes, there's a thing called apoptosis. Apoptosis is program cell death. And it's very often seen in these kind of situations where the brain, because it thinks that the attack is something that needs to be contained, starts a program cell death that actually kills cells way beyond the area of damage. And it might actually be chronic where the damage happens continuously for a long time. And the inflammation itself, the microglia actually start eating away the dead cells. Correct. And correct. To actually cause the death of other cells in the vicinity too, thinking of it as an infection. Correct. And we've talked about this in, in the context of sleep. People who don't get good sleep, people who have sleep apnea, their microglia actually go awry and starts eating away from good brain tissue, including the axonal connections, they start eating away good axonal connections as opposed to poor connections or, or debris. And that's so, the hypothesis behind why people who have long-term sleep disorders have a smaller shrunken brain. Yeah. They think that the atrophy is because of the microglia going haywire and starting damaging the brain. Now, in aging, this happens, it's believed, and there's some evidence, that the chronic process starts accumulating. You remember that omega-3, omega-6 pathways, omega-6, and we're oversimplifying these concepts, but omega-6 is a pro-inflammatory, pro-coagulant, meaning a coagulation and clot formation phenomenon, and we need it. And omega-3 is an anti-inflammatory, anti-coagulation pathway, and we need that. And that balance goes a little more inflammatory. And even beyond that, even your cellular processes and others, we overreact a lot to, to, um, uh, to inflammation. At the same time, in other ways, our immune system gets weaker because we don't have good cellular response to cancers and things of that nature as well. So as we get older, if we're, especially if we're not taking good care of ourselves, we're affecting our immune response to acute and chronic conditions. So, so that's, uh, that's something that we have to address. And, 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 and traumatic brain injury, the initial assault is usually movement of the head in a case, and the part that moves more and has a shearing phenomenon or, or damage is the connection between areas of the brain, which are the white matter. You remember the, uh, the myelin sheet, and those areas are damaged, and there's a lot of inflammation in those areas as well. So, uh, and then as a result of that, then you have all these interleukins come in, you have the cellular response, then you have the peripheral cells come in, and then you have a chronic response to um, a, a traumatic brain injury and even dementia to that extent. So, so all of the symptoms that are associated with the chronic um, you know, traumatic encephalopathy or concussions uh, at the acute stages. I know this talk is about brain inflammation, but we're focusing on um, you know, this particular condition because it's such a great example of what happens in the brain and what happens when we, uh, you know, during what we often refer to as brain inflammation. So that's why people start having memory problems or headaches or trouble with their vision, visual spatial abnormalities, yes. trouble with balance. Um, even mood and you know their anxiety and their their capacity to cope with difficulties and complexities and they can go into depression because of this brain inflammation. Correct. I, I want to make sure I don't overextend this concept, but there is plenty of evidence that the inflammatory process, especially chronic inflammatory process, can significantly affect our mood centers. Remember through the NM, uh, the uh, limbic system and. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the amygdala, the part of the emo emotional brain that acutely responds to emotion. So there's plenty of data on that. 
Um, other diseases, that it's usually not the primary driver, it's a secondary driver. Alzheimer's, there are many different causes that we think is completely not, it's not been completely elucidated, but there's vascular phenomenon, there are um, um, inflammatory phenomenon, there are um, uh, amyloid and tau phenomenon, and different kind of processes. It's not one animal, it's multiple different processes. But in all of them, inflammation is one part of the story. And that's the part that if you affect long-term, you can at least mitigate or reduce or slow down uh, the process to some extent. With diseases like Parkinson's, there seems to be more oxidative damage, uh, although we still don't know completely, but there's greater oxidation damage. Uh, there's evidence of genetic uh, elements to it. And, and we haven't fully elucidated Parkinson's. There are some, um, stories or um, implications of toxins uh, in the environment that might be uh, the, the causal agents in Parkinson's, in, at least in some uh, uh, proportion thereof. But we still have to better uh, identify yeah, it. And, still, and the research is still in its early days. It is. So That's we... why all of a sudden for one population, things like insulin resistant management works in Parkinson's, but in, in others, it doesn't. And, and so we have to see if we have to better delineate and separate the different kinds of Parkinson's, the different kinds of Alzheimer's. It's not one thing. ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, terrible disease, as you all know. Um, uh, it's a rapidly uh, moving disease that uh, happens over a couple of years and usually takes the person's life in three to five years. It's a motor neuron disease and it's um, a superoxide dismutase, which is a, um, a, this oxidative pathway that's affected in a lot of them. Um, there's a genetic component in a lot of them, but to be honest, and for most, we don't know. We do, it's, it's almost Seems like, like spontaneous. Seems like a sporadic one. Sporadic, yeah. yes. Yeah. So that one we're trying to find out, but but especially in this, as a secondary and tertiary, there's inflammatory processes involved as well. So as you can see, and definitely multiple sclerosis, it's an autoimmune phenomenon. We know that it's more prevalent in women, and there's all these epidemiological phenomenon around it. It's extremely interesting. We'll have not just one talk on this, but multiple, uh, because um, it's a it's a body's reaction to its own uh, cells, specifically these wrappings around oligodendroglia sites around um, axons, and it's a progressive disease for a lot of people. And now we know that their inflammation is a big, big part of it, right. and a lot of treatments involved inflammation. So, <clears throat> so we have to be cautious um, that you know there are remaining questions about the degree to which inflammatory processes can be lumped together in all of these conditions. Um, yes, we understand that they these different conditions that you just explained, they perhaps share common features, yes. you know, such as activation of the pro-inflammatory responses, the involvement of microglia and astrocytes, but the way in which these responses overlap between the diseases is not very well understood. Yeah. And it's a very exciting time for people to actually look at the, the different types of cytokines, the different types of reactions and cells that are involved in each and every of these diseases. So as far as treatment, this is the purpose of this talk. We really have to delineate between disease processes and aging. In aging, yes, chronic inflammation as it happens as a result of lifestyle is a big, big factor. Yeah. I mean, massive. We know that at least indirectly, and even by uh, some, some, some studies that they've done on humans, that uh, inflammation is, in uh, those that develop disease long-term, inflammation is a chronic state that actually leads to things like, um, or, or at least um, increases the risks of diseases like Alzheimer's and other degenerative diseases, and, and, and the aging of the brain itself, for that Absolutely. matter. Absolutely. Aging is one of the biggest reasons. Correct, correct. But for the more acute diseases like strokes and traumatic brain injury and, and all these other inflammatory processes we, we talked about, then uh, anti-inflammatory processes have not been very successful. We're not saying that that's not going to be the case in the future, but at least we're saying that it's, it's not the, 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 the main factor. There's a primary factor and then inflammation is a secondary factor that should be addressed. And the way we address it is gonna be very different. Uh, for the acute processes, the things that you have to do for aging is not going to be as effective. You're going to need powerful drugs that stops cascades very specifically. And, and it's not going to be the vitamin concoctions that they're pushing on you now on TV and everywhere else. It's not. It's going to be 
uh, much more sophisticated and, and it's gonna it's a few years away not as much as we think but I think it's it's a few years away we have a um, an amazing young man who's the head of AI Academy in Harvard that's going to be talking with us fairly soon about uh, artificial intelligence and its influence on medicine you have to listen to that talk this 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 human being it's gonna is be a absolutely lot of fun. brilliant and I think Alex is going to be part of that conversation our son who's just graduated and and he is a AI sp um, a specialist in college. Uh, was well, he wants to say computer science? Computer science, yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, because right. he thinks that he thinks AI has been misused, misused and overused. But nonetheless, at this point, uh, for acute diseases, um, yes, um, lifestyle matters. It's going to have some effect. But when they say that I'm going to reverse my lupus <clears throat> or MS. I worry about that right. um, because it, it, it uh, takes away people from drugs that are actually out there that work and it overstates it. We never say you shouldn't have lifestyle as a component, absolutely. But the weight of truth matters mm -hmm. and everything we do, the weight of truth is as important as the truth itself. So the weight of truth here matters. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's what we are addressing here. I was very excited to read the latest research on neuroinflammation, and there's so many amazing um, research studies that are going on. And just as an example, uh, when it comes to um, taking care or at least uh, changing the whole uh, environment of neuroinflammation in the brain. So there's, as we talked about the different types of cytokines and different kind of genes and cells that modulate inflammation, one of the things that they're looking at is TREM2. Now TREM2 essentially is a system that teaches microglia and astrocytes. I'm nerding out here. I love it. So TREM2 actually tells microglial cells to turn up a particular type of receptor for interleukin-3. Yeah. So when interleukin-3 goes up, goes higher, it actually shifts the microglia from this aggressive, angry person that's destroying everything back to its, you know, kind, caring, housekeeping nature. So basically, it's what you do to me is when I'm like a, a very frustrated, you just put your hand on me and like, Calm down. Take a deep breath, and that's that's what it trim Thank three. you for equating me to interleukin three, but yes, it's a powerful. Maybe, it's you, a powerful. You're cytokine. the interleukin three in this relationship both of, most of the time. But so, so it has the potential to be this new treatment and scientists and physicians are trying to figure it out. So there's a lot of great things happening and, and I'm just super excited. That's just one of the little that's just one of the elements many. that we're better understanding better what they do and how to manipulate. And it's a very exciting time but not with the things that are being pushed right now. Agreed. So that's the most important thing for all of us. After hearing all this, you know, medical terminologies and the jargon, what is, what is the message here? What is the message for someone who is concerned about brain inflammation, who is concerned about all of these different neurological conditions that we discussed, right? And who want to be empowered to do something about reducing their chances of having neuroinflammation related to these chronic age-related diseases. The, the, the answer, not necessarily, the, sorry, not necessarily age-related because head trauma can happen anytime. Yeah, uh, so the answer to some of the um, uh, these um, diseases like MS and lupus and, 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 and many others that, that's gonna be a little unpopular in the circles that we dwell in is that um, lifestyle is important but the medications that are out there right now are life-saving for some of the people in these conditions. And uh, some of the leaders in the lifestyle world are basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. without even knowing what inflammation is. And without having any data, even right now, as we were speaking, I told you where we, I can't extrapolate beyond this, but the data is not there. So it's critical that for disease processes, we do implement lifestyle. Absolutely. But we do not overstate the effect of lifestyle and diseases that could be affected by drugs. Like, write this, this one, NMDA receptor. If any lifestyle person says that carrot juice is going to save you, they've just killed you. But IVIG can save this person. Great. So that's important. And then for general aging process, absolutely for that, we lifestyle has profound effects long terms. Uh, that delineation has to be made. And the word inflammation and neuroinflammation has been overused, has been abused, 
and irresponsibly used, and we need to address it uh, in that way. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and take some questions from the community, shall we? We could talk actually quite a bit, but this is good. All right. We talk about exercise and how it helps uh, increase and uh, reduce TNF alpha. Um, uh, the inflammatory response actually significantly quiescent in normal living processes. How sleep and bad sleep, sleep can reduce that significantly. All of these things. I wanted um, to weave. I, yeah. I actually wanted to weave the rest of the talk with you know some of the questions that Fantastic. we have. Um, there's a really good question by Janet. She said, "How would you know that you have brain inflammation?" I think that's a really good question. How do you know when you have brain that you have brain inflammation? How would you answer that? You don't. I mean, unless it's an acute event, like I talked about, where there's an acute um, um, uh, neuropsychological changes, acute um, uh, headaches that that are unremitting, that, that were not happening before, things of that nature. You you don't know, and then um, you know people go in and they can investigate and find out if if it's a phenomenon like that. And that's rare, and and or if a stroke or, or or something of that nature. If you're just aging, assume there's a low grade inflammation. And if you're just aging and if you're eating and living unhealthfully, assume that your low-grade inflammation is a little higher than the average person. We don't even know how to quantify that well yet. But there is plenty of trends and data that shows that there is that inflammatory phenomenon that's propagating aging. But it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things. And also trying to... Uh, picture it in a very complex way. So there's, you know, it's brain damage or you know, chronic diseases of aging in the brain does not occur because of one particular path. If you've read our book, you know, the the four pillars included inflammation, oxidation, glucose dysregulation, and lipid dysregulation. They don't happen independently. A lot of times there are multiple things happening at the same time, and it's that synergistic effect of these processes that actually determine damage. Or sometimes, you know, when we talk about inflammation, it doesn't necessarily mean brain damage. It could be indirectly through the cardiovascular system and then brain uh, damage. So yeah. it is essentially a condition among many that can result in brain damage. Correct. I mean, uncontrolled diabetes um, has been associated with with uh, inflammation and and so many other prior conditions. So they are interrelated. Beautifully stated. Now there are, there are a lot of uh, clinicians who t check for inflammatory markers. Some necessary, some unnecessary. Uh, you know, things like high sensitivity C-reactive protein or Correct. the interleukins, whether it's six or eight. Um, or sed rate. Or sed sedimentation rate. They call it ESR. Um, so those are important for assessing peripheral information, inflammation. How does that play or how is that related to central nervous system inflammation? Actually, the data is not as good as people might think it is. I mean, you would assume that if you have chronic peripheral inflammation, you have central nervous system inflammation as well. But we really don't have great data. I mean, we have data. We always have data. There are hundreds of thousands of papers being published by everybody. But great data to show that relationship. Again, the soft assumption and extrapolation is that if you're going to have chronic inflammations peripherally, you're going to have chronic inflammation centrally as well, uh, different degrees. And at the minimum, it's going to start damaging the blood-brain barrier, isn't it, from outside? And then once the blood-brain barrier is damaged, then that's going to go into the central nervous system. That's why in a lot of the chronic diseases like Alzheimer's, they find infections in the central nervous system or or evidence of viruses and, and, and th those kind of things that you find in the periphery that you usually don't find in, in your brain. Why? Not because initially they thought that that was the cause of Alzheimer's. No, it's because the blood-brain barrier has been compromised now. And, and so um, the assumption is that over time that's going to compromise the blood-brain barrier and consequently the, uh, it's going to be found in, in central nervous system as well. So the tests that are important for checking your inflammation level, because that's one of the questions, is what your primary care physician can order. But, you know, knowing that that's not a clear indication of brain inflammation per se. Correct. All right. So you talked about nutrition, that it's important for, you know, people to eat a generally healthy diet to reduce their, their inflammation. What else? What other lifestyle measures are there that have been proven to reduce inflammatory changes? Exercise has incredible effect on directly and indirectly affecting inflammation. In fact, the direct effect of exercise on lowering inflammatory markers. Initially, yes, of course, there's trauma to the joints and so on and so forth. But over time, the long-term effect on inflammation has been documented 
significantly and repetitively. And exercise also increases blood flow and, and BDNF, and you know all of these things that increase connectivity between neurons, blood flow to the brain, lowering inflammation, and all of these things. And so uh, exercise, to me, is one of the most important factors you need for, for inflammation in life in general. And it, unless there is a significant limitation, physical limitation, Nobody should be um, uh, without exercise in their uh, lifestyle plan. Absolutely. And sleep also is important. Sleep is definitely important. So uh, all in all, general lifestyle is incredibly important. Um, question from Sandra. Do you think a healthy gut microbiome may indirectly contribute to the health of the microglia and blood-brain barrier? So th there is definitely um, a lot of evidence that when we have a healthy uh, gut microbiome, the short chain fatty acids that are created due to eating well and having a healthy microbiome can actually be quite protective of the blood brain barrier. There is evidence for that. And there's been some tests, but they're all animal model tests where if an animal was in an inflammatory state, when they were given antibiotics, for example, or when their gut microbiome, an unhealthy gut microbiome was completely cleared of the inflammation, they actually had less neurodegenerative diseases. But these, these research have only been done in animals and they haven't really been translated in humans per se. So in theory, yes, but uh, we're still waiting for better studies to show us that direct link. Uh, as a side that I forgot to say is that we some of the tools that we're developing and we were actually looking into doing this kind of research at Loma Linda is we have these ligands that can bind to inflammatory markers in the central nervous system and then can be picked up by, by PET scans. So you give this ligand, it binds to the inflammatory markers in the brain and you can quantify and locate inflammation in the brain. Um, it's very preliminary um, uh, tools. Look at the exciting factors there that we can actually do that. And then watch it modulate, increase or decrease with exercise. And so some of the research we want to do is just that. Look at effect of exercise directly on neuroinflammation. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's exciting stuff coming around the corner. Um, there's another question. Uh, does having multiple TBIs generally mean that there is inflammation in the brain? I have had six years of occupational therapy, physical therapy, vestibular and vision therapy, and I was told that the injuries are permanent by three different providers, but no one mentioned inflammation. Do you suggest testing for inflammation after all these years? Uh, the answer is no, uh, because uh, first of all, inflammation is going to be very difficult to test centrally, but assume you have inflammation as you assume that there was damage to the neurons. Um, and, and then also assume that you can improve it. The fact that you're here with us writing this, this incredibly uh, well-constructed question tells us where you are cognitively. So you are past the precipice of no return. You're, you're doing well. You're going to get better and better by improving your lifestyle, by increasing your, um, uh, your lifestyle components that, is, that are, will improve inflammation and also cognition and reserve and connectivity and vasculature and all of this and BDNF, you're going to reduce the effect and also the damage over time. So I would say that uh, that would be the answer. Because even if you if there is a tool that can look at your central nervous system, because they're most of them are research, uh, central nervous system inflammatory markers, what do you do then? exactly what I just said that we would do. And, and uh, so therefore, I think that that would be the case. Absolutely. Becky has a really good question. She says, is it possible to have dementia without inflammation or is that always a component? Um, dementia as a result of strokes, the stroke is a bigger component, way bigger component than inflammation. Or the vascular say. disease. Vascular damage, mm -hmm. yes. Dementia as a result of perineoplastic syndrome. Um, um, it's a combination, depends on, it's a bit of inflammation, a lot of the damage as a result of uh, body's response to the inflammatory process. So in that case, it's more inflammatory response. Um, um, dementia as a result of metabolic phenomenon, it's mostly the metabolic phenomenon, be it alcohol, be it um, uh, some kind of deficiency syndrome, B12 or thyroid, those are the drivers. Yes, inflammation is a part of it. So you see the ratios vary depending on the, the underlying cause. Amazing. Uh, Sean is with us online and he says, does emotional distress create hormones which increases brain inflammation? And there's a second part to the question. Does sleep deprivation increase brain inflammation or prevent a recovery of brain inflammation? 
Beautiful questions. The answer to the first one is uh, yes, uh, cortisol. Uh, when you have stress, cortisol goes up, melatonin goes down, that's why it affects your sleep also in many different ways. Um, and cortisol has been shown to have effect on inflammatory process. Now, does it have an effect on uh, a central inflammatory process? There's some evidence, and we're assuming that there is. If there's peripheral and there's chronic peripheral, then it's going to eventually lead to central as well. So yes, that, that, that question is most likely yes. Um, can sleep um, affect inflammation? Yes, mm -hmm. both on the positive side and negative side. We talked about microglia, that uh, they've um, observed microglia actually going awry and doing damage to normal brain tissue. And over-response of inflammation when people who are sleep-deprived. So yes, poor sleep can increase inflammation and good sleep can mitigate, allay, and reduce. Absolutely. All right. Um, Sean has another question. Parasympathetic and inflammation. Does acceptance, meditation, and regular sleep and recovery help reduce inflammation? Does regular exercise decrease brain inflammation? Absolutely. I think he put the questions right before we were discussing the exercise section. But yes, yes definitely. Regular sleep um, can reduce inflammation. As far as meditation goes, the regulation of cortisol, cortisol I suppose exactly. it does. Acceptance is also a form of meditation and mindfulness, which can actually help regulate cortisol uh, secretion and stress in general. And regular exercise, as Dean mentioned, does as well. I mean, we, we, we talk about cortisol, but there are other pathways as well. But cortisol is the dominant The main pathway. one. Yes. Absolutely. Does ginger work as a safe anti-inflammatory? Is ginger tea, sliced fresh ginger boiled in water, help reduce inflammation markers? I don't think there's a lot of... Um, uh, information on that is there, Dean? Um, I mean, it's I'm not going to name names, but yeah, there's one video here that that says ginger, and one video that, that says this and that. But and they probably have some level of anti-inflammatories, yeah, yeah. but it's not just ginger. It's the the ginger with greens with with all the other stuff that that will have a greater effect and and abatement and and stopping and reducing the inflammatory foods. That, that in combination will have the greater effect. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that says, what about Lyme and co-infections? So Lyme disease and co-infections. Yes, absolutely. There's evidence that Lyme disease can cause significant either um, autoantibodies as well, as well as uh, inflammatory process. Absolutely, in central nervous system Lyme uh, infections have been shown to affect the brain significantly. Absolutely. All right. And then uh, lastly, we'll go, we'll go ahead and take um, a last question. Sunita says, what are the earliest symptoms uh, that one might see with brain inflammation? Memory issues, lack of focus, irritability. I suppose it just depends on what that brain inflammation is accompanied with or what is the stem or, you know, the, the initial uh, issue that brings about the brain inflammation. If it is a localized brain problem like a stroke, you will have you know, some focal neurological deficits yeah. like a weak arm or a weak leg or a numb arm, numb leg. If it's mostly associated with, uh, say for example, deposition of beta amyloid protein that is seen in Alzheimer's disease or some sort of tauopathies that are seen in uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and some other neurodegenerative diseases, then yeah, memory issues, lack of focus and irritability. So it just depends on what, what it's associated with. Correct. All right. Well, that was it for today. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the recording of this live podcast will be on the homepage. And if you have more questions, we would be more than happy to answer them. Really appreciate you all joining us today. Thank have you. a great day. Thank you.